ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Is common descent a testable scientific theory? Hello and welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Luskin. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Paul Nelson, a senior fellow at Discovery Institute and adjunct professor in the Master of Arts program in Science and Religion at Biola University. He received his PhD in the Philosophy of Biology and Evolutionary Theory from the University of Chicago. We're here today to discuss Paul's contributions to the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring the Ultimate Questions About Life in the Cosmos, published by Harvest House. I'm a co-editor of the book, along with Bill Dembski and Joseph Holden, and we certainly hope that you will take a look at the book. It's available on Amazon.com. It has contributions from leading ID thinkers, including Jay Richards, Stephen Meyer, Douglas Axe, Michael Behe, Robert Marks, Jonathan Wells, Guillermo Gonzalez, Walter Bradley, Brian Miller, and many others, and of course, Dr. Paul Nelson. So, uh, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, Paul, the chapter you wrote for the book, Can Universal Common Descent Be Tested?, is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I know that one that you have spent much of your career researching. In fact, you are perhaps one of the most preeminent experts on this topic in the ID movement. So it's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you about this. So your chapter is on whether common descent can be tested. What is the short answer to that question? Well, I need to qualify that. The question I ask in the chapter is, can universal common descent be tested? And the short answer is no. So, okay, well, then what's the long answer? And can you explain the difference between your two answers if there is one? What's, what's going on here? Well, the long answer is yes. Now, that may seem like a contradiction. How can you answer yes and no to the same question? But the contradiction is only apparent. And what I do in my chapter is explain why this apparent contradiction exists in evolutionary theory. And the short version of the long answer, if you will, is that universal common descent as a proposition, as a scientific proposition, is perfectly general. The theory holds that all organisms on Earth, that's everything, whether it is alive today or was alive during the history of the planet, all living things on Earth trace their lineage to the last universal common ancestor. It's a hypothetical entity, a cell that existed probably about 3.5 to 3.8 billion years ago, that all life on the planet traces its ancestry to that last universal common ancestor, often abbreviated LUCA. Now, the problem is the proposition all living things share a common ancestor is very short, easy to state, perfectly general, and for that reason, attractive to biologists. But that proposition by itself is untestable. That's kind of funny, Paul, because I agree with you that there are two answers to the question of whether universal common descent can be tested, the short answer and the long answer. The only difference I would say is I think the short answer is yes and the long answer is no. But but I have the same answers as you otherwise. We can talk about that some other time. I I think we're actually in pretty much very broad agreement on these issues. Well, I think actually if we could sit with a cup of coffee in a seminar room and a whiteboard and unpack our various answers, we would find that they're actually congruent. So the long answer 
begins by noting that this, this proposition, universal common descent, gains its empirical content. By that, I mean what it actually says about the world by being coupled with other parts of our biological knowledge. So historically, the content of the theory has come not from the theory itself, but by linking it with other pieces of what we know about biology. So in the chapter, I discuss the process of translation. In other words, taking information from DNA through messenger RNA and then feeding a messenger RNA strand through the ribosome to generate proteins. There's a lot of detailed molecular knowledge there that we can couple with our theory of universal common descent that will allow us to generate observational statements that we can then go out and check. Or we can couple universal common descent with our knowledge of the structure of the genetic code, which will again enable us to make testable predictions that we can go out and check. So really the way to think about universal common descent, I think most accurately, is in a bundle, in a theoretical bundle where that untestable proposition is coupled with parts of our knowledge that we can check. And then this will allow us to universalize those parts and then make predictions. And the challenge comes both for design theorists, but also for evolutionary biologists. What happens when those predictions fail? Because the logic, in this case, modus tollens, where you say, if A, therefore B, negation B, therefore negation A, when you go and unpack A and take it apart, you find that you've got universal common descent in there, and you have an auxiliary theory or a helper theory that enabled you to make the prediction B. Someone has to pay for that failed prediction, right? The logic is inescapable. And the question is, in that bundle, who's going to pay? Is it going to be universal common descent, or is it going to be the auxiliary theory? So let's talk about the universality of the genetic code, or as you put it, translation. Would you consider that to be a failed or a successful prediction of universal common descent? Very good question. Actually, it's interesting to note historically that the universality of the code, and just for the listener, the code is the translation table that mediates information transfer between the realm of nucleic acid, DNA and RNA, and the realm of protein, amino acids, and also the stop and start instructions for the ribosome. So it's a fundamental aspect of information transfer in all of life. Any cell that is producing proteins, which would be everything from a bacterial cell like E. coli in our gut, all the way up to blue whales and oak trees, any cell that is producing proteins has got to transfer information from its sort of read-only form in DNA into the proteins via the code. So the code was actually solved in the mid-1960s. It was Nobel Prize winning work. But the universality of the code was predicted three years earlier in 1963 in an article in the journal Science. And I'll just quote briefly from that article because it's fascinating. 
in terms of understanding the logic of universal common descent and how it makes predictions. It's fascinating to see the prediction that was made. This was by Heingardner and Engelberg, published in Science, 1963. They say, a mutation in the genetic code would place new amino acids in certain loci and entirely eliminate amino acids from other loci of practically all proteins in an organism. It is reasonable to postulate that mutations of this kind cannot supplant the original code. The genetic code, once established, would therefore remain invariant, close quote. So what do you have there? What you have is a claim about the functional necessity for the code to remain as it is, because the code is going to affect, as they say, every protein produced by that cell or by that organism. And a good metaphor, not entirely precise, but useful would be rewiring your keyboard of your laptop or your, let's say, the keyboard of your iPhone, right? So that when you press the letter A on your iPhone, you press the letter A on your laptop, instead of an A appearing on the screen, a semicolon appears, right? Well, you can't scramble your keys very much, and you're going to have gibberish. So the functional claim in this prediction in 1963, and remember, the code itself has yet to be solved. They know there has to be a code but the actual structure of the code has yet to be solved. They say, well, look, if there is a code, it can't vary. Now that is a strong testable claim, okay? And what happens is when you couple a claim like that, theoretically to universal common descent, universal common descent says, there must have been a state in the history of life in Luca, which we can infer had a DNA genome, there must have been a state in the last universal common ancestor such that all the codes that we see today could have arisen from that original code. And the prediction is, of course, all the codes that we're going to see today will be the same because they inherited those codes from Luca. If the code cannot vary, whatever organism we check should exhibit the same code. So this is a strong prediction coming out of universal common descent when coupled with our knowledge of the necessity for functional invariance. And from the mid-1960s until really the late 1980s, early 90s, you open a biology textbook, a college biology textbook, and in the section on the theory of universal common descent, you will see this prediction there as a strong confirmation of the theory. In fact, Richard Dawkins says in The Blind Watchmaker, this is published in 1986, he says, how do I know that all living things share a common ancestor? The universality of the code. For him, it's the touchstone of the reality of a single tree of life rooted in Luca. Now, what happens is in the late 1970s, exceptions were discovered to the universality of the code in mitochondria, energy-producing organelles in eukaryotes that have their own small complement of proteins, their own small complement of DNA, and of course, a code. And it was thought, well, there aren't a lot of proteins in mitochondria with respect to what's produced by the DNA and the nucleus. So they can probably tolerate a little wiggle room in their code. Then in the mid-80s, variant codes were discovered in 
nuclear codes. And now there are so many variant codes that the NCBI, the National Center for Biotechnology Information, maintains a web page where you have to go look up the code for your model group. If you're studying, let's say, ciliated protozoa like tetrahymena or paramecium, or a variety of yeasts have different codes, ciliated protozoa have a number of variations in their stop codons and so forth. There are so many variant codes that if you try to predict protein structure using the so-called universal code, which of course is not universal anymore at all, you're going to make mistakes because your particular study or model system is using a variant code. There's a fascinating exchange, actually. You can watch it, I think, on YouTube between Craig Venter, the genome guru, and Richard Dawkins about this very point where Dawkins says, you know, I know that all life shares the same code. Inventor says, hey, wait a minute, that's not true. We just did some experiments in mycoplasma that your proteins wouldn't work in mycoplasma because mycoplasma uses a variant code. Anyway, it's a lot of data there in my answer, but what happened was the prediction of the universality of the code went belly up. It's just not true. So again, go back to my concept of this theoretical bundle of universal common descent plus auxiliary theory, that predicts a universal code. The code's not universal. Something in that bundle is responsible for that failed prediction. The question is what? And what's tended to happen in response to that failed prediction is quite interesting. So do evolutionary biologists consider the universal common ancestry part of that bundle to be what's wrong? Or is it some auxiliary prediction or some secondary aspect of the theory? What do they pay for the failed prediction with, as you put it, Paul? All right. Well, I'll tell you what's with only one exception that I'm aware of, and that is the late and maverick theoretician Hubert Yaki. The response throughout the evolutionary biology community has been to make the auxiliary theory pay. Universal common descent is maintained, protected from falsification. And well, actually, I've got a, I've got a wonderful passage here from the biologist at University of Manchester, evolutionary biologist Matthew Cobb, who wrote a whole book, a beautiful, wonderful uh, historical book on the discovery of the code. And he treats this question of universality or non-universality in the book. And let me just quote from his discussion. He says, the non-universality of the genetic code was completely unexpected and went against all the assumptions of all the researchers who had been studying the genetic code. These discoveries show that, strictly speaking, Minot, that's Jacques Minot, the Nobel laureate, was wrong. What is true for Escherichia coli, the bacterium, is not necessarily true for an elephant in all respects. In other words, Jacques Minot had argued that if you understand the molecular biology of E. coli, you've got a pretty good handle on what's going to be true for elephants and whales and starfish and so forth. Anyway, Matthew Cobb goes on, very same passage, quote, although the genetic code is not strictly universal, this has not altered our idea of the fundamental processes of evolution at all. There is no dispute that life as we know it evolved only once and that we all descend from a population of cells that lived some 3.5 billion years ago, known as the last universal common ancestor or LUCA, close quote. 
So you can see what's happened. Failed prediction, you work your way back up the logic tree to your theoretical bundle. Universal common descent in the existence of LUCA are insulated from observational challenge. And there's nature standing there. I like to think of her as a state trooper in her motorcycle uniform, right? And she's got her little ticket book. And you're sitting in the car and she's writing out the ticket to the auxiliary theory. And the auxiliary theory actually is perfectly harmless in this case, right? It could be true that the code cannot vary, right? It could be true that these, these groups with their variant codes, they have those variant codes for very good functional reasons. And what the data are actually telling you is, you know what? These groups are actually aboriginally distinct. And the variant codes that they exhibit is a signal from nature telling you they didn't share a common ancestor, but that's not what happens in practice. And what happens in practice is universal common descent sits there in the car with its arms folded, smiling, and the ticket from nature is written out to the auxiliary theory. Okay, if you do that enough, and we can look at other examples that are mentioned in my chapter, if you do that enough, you render universal common descent an axiom. It becomes invulnerable to empirical challenge. You can do that if you want, but you end up paying a very high price because universal common descent ends up telling you nothing about the world. It ends up being consistent with whatever we observe. And that is not a healthy state for a science or for a theory to be in. We want our theories to be vulnerable to evidence should it arise. So in the final analysis, Dr. Nelson, is universal common descent testable? I would say that it is, but in a rather peculiar way. After all, as I said at the beginning, the theory, it, its perfect generality is both its strength and its weakness. If you have a theory that applies to every organism on Earth equally, you have to abstract away from all the particulars that those that E. coli exhibits or that Homo sapiens exhibits, you have to abstract away from that and express the theory in, an, in a perfectly general form. The problem with perfectly general theories is they can drift away from evidence and exist as formal structures that aren't actually ever confronted by data. So the way that universal common descent ends up being testable is it does postulate a state of affairs that would be, for instance, for the genetic code, where you say there, there was a state in LUCA that is consistent with all the observations that we actually make about genetic codes. Now, a biologist can say, if I go back to my metaphor of the state trooper nature standing there in her uniform with her you know, ticket book, a biologist sitting in that car can say, you know what? I'm going to stick with the auxiliary theory. I actually know a lot more about that than I do about this abstract notion of universal common descent. And you know what? You can write the ticket to universal common descent. It is responsible for our failed prediction. And nature passes the pink ticket, right, for 200 bucks or whatever to universal common descent. What's happening right now in evolutionary biology is a lot of biologists are doing that. They are saying, I'm no longer willing to let universal common descent, this abstract geometry, I'm no longer willing to let that off the hook. It's got to pay. 
very senior National Academy level evolutionary biologists like Eugene Kunin at the NCBI, Didier Raoult in France, in Marseille, Eric Baptiste at the Sorbonne, Michael Sivanen, uh, I believe he's at UC Davis, a growing roster of evolutionary biologists with really no sympathies at all for intelligent design are saying this single tree of life picture and the existence of LUCA are no longer facts. They're no longer unassailable. We've got to question them. And I think in the light of this growing ocean of genomic data, which are inconsistent with universal common descent, this is going to accelerate. It's a very exciting development in biology. And even if I weren't an intelligent design advocate or theorist, I would be fascinated by this because it represents a major shift in biological thinking from the late 20th century to where we are in 2021. Well, Dr. Nelson, thank you for your erudite analysis of universal common descent. As is usual, when I start off disagreeing with you, I end up agreeing with you in the end. After a conversation, I think our positions are actually pretty close, but we'll have to have a, a beer or a coffee or something together sometime to uh, talk this out more. So we really appreciate you helping us to untangle this complex issue. I do think one thing is clear, though, and that is that if you just take the barefaced predictions of universal common descent, they have a lot of challenges from the data. We can talk about auxiliary hypotheses and who pays the fine and you know the social psychology of evolutionary biologists and how you know they like to unjustly and discriminatorily ticket the auxiliary theories rather than their own core theories. There's some theory profiling going on there, I think. <laughs> but uh, the bottom line is that the raw theory of universal common descent has a lot of challenges from the data. And I know you've done a lot of work to bring that out. You've certainly impacted my thinking a lot. So I, I hope that our listeners will go and check out your chapter in the book, Can Universal Common Descent Be Tested? I've also got a chapter in the book on common ancestry. You should read both though, because together they make a pretty strong punch, I think. So thank you very much, Dr. Nelson, for spending time with us today. I really enjoyed it. Anytime. Again, the book is The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring the Ultimate Questions About Life and the Cosmos. It's available on Amazon. Go check it out. I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.